This episode of Rick and Rick Rule the World is brought to you by Taskin, the first name in ultra stylish premium quality travel gear, like the exquisitely designed Taskin One expandable backpack. With nine practical variations, the Taskin One is always the right size for wherever life takes you next. Save 30% on your next purchase when you use the promo code RNRTAKE30. That's R&R TAKE30 at TaskinSF.com. Next up on an all-new Rick and Rick. Sing hallelujah, the Writers Guild strike is over. That's right, a deal has finally been struck between the WGA West and the studios. But what does it mean for new movies, TV and streaming shows, and the use of generative AI in Hollywood? We've got our hot take on all of this and more. On the one show that's always rated R for Rick. And everybody rules the world. Hey, welcome one and all to an all-new edition of Rick and Rick Rule the World. I'm Rick Matheson, and I am here with Rick Wooten and our unique brand of news and views from the worlds of marketing, media, tech, and pop culture. It has been a minute, Rick. How the hell are you doing? I'm good, man. It's good to catch up with you. Yeah, we have been scattered to the four winds with work and travel, even doing episodes separately. And I have to tell you, we got so much good feedback from the two-parter episode that you just did, your interview with Matt Benkowski, author of The Creative Algorithm, How to Harness the Power of AI and Create Outstanding Digital Products. Great episode. Really good stuff. Yeah, you know, I've known Matt now for probably 20 years. In fact, I met him just before I met you. And he's always been kind of on the cutting edge of design and user experience experience. So when I heard he had this book, it was like, I got to get you on the show, man. We got to do this. Yeah. In fact, that is the first time that we have done a two-part interview. I just didn't want to give up any of the goodness that he was sharing. So folks, if you haven't listened to that episode yet, you're definitely going to want to. And we're going to continue the conversation a bit in this episode by focusing on why generative AI figured into the resolution of the Writers Guild strike in Hollywood and any lessons that it may hold for other industries. But first, it's been a while, so let's catch up on some movies and TV shows. I had mentioned that I don't think it ever made it onto an episode that I had been slowly working through our list of our most anticipated movies of the year and how underwhelmed I ended up being, starting with The Flash. You finally saw it, right? Yeah, I did. I did finally see it. Did you like it at all? You see, here's the thing. I didn't go in with the history that you did, you know, being a DC fan and all that. And so, to be honest with you, I liked it despite the fact that I wasn't a huge fan of the main actor, but the rest of the movie carried it through for me. I really, really did enjoy it. Michael Keaton returning as Batman was fun, and I thought Sasha Kale as Supergirl was good, but I think I mentioned at the time, the best headline I saw about the movie, a review was, the spirit is willing, but the flash is weak, and that perfectly (laughs) summed up the movie for me. Did you see Mission Impossible? Dead Reckoning? No, I'm I'm behind on that one. It's good, and it's a two-parter, so it was part one. I didn't feel like it was as good, but it would be hard Hard to be as good as Mission Impossible Fallout, one of my all-time favorites. Yeah, no, no, that's an amazing one. Yeah, hard to beat that one. We did see Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. I thought it was really good. I mean, it certainly wasn't my favorite Indiana Jones. No. But I, I think considering his age and everything else, I think I think it went pretty well. And I thought the storyline was interesting. I liked how they kind of tied it together. So it worked for me. Across the Spider-Verse, we both saw, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that was awesome. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, those two probably were my favorite. You asked me at the time 
time, hey, does this beat into the Spider-Verse for you? And I said, I got to see both parts. And unfortunately, I thought that the second part was already in the can, and apparently it was not. And so it has been ground to halt with these strikes in Hollywood, just like everything else. The one big movie I've left, it sounds like you have it left too, is Oppenheimer. I made the mistake of mentioning, I think I'm going to go see Oppenheimer. My wife and daughter chimed in and said, oh, we wouldn't mind going to the movies and seeing Barbie together. So that's two painful hours I can't get back. I saw Barbie as well. It was good. I mean, it wasn't the best movie I've seen this year. But I do believe after watching it, it's going to absolutely be a cult classic. You know, there was some important stuff talked about in the movie. There was definitely some critical scenes. It's just going to be interesting to see where it comes next. I thought it had a good message. I think a lot of people were afraid that maybe it was all about male bashing or something, but it was really about how bad hierarchies can be for both women and men. And so I thought that was good. For me, it was just a little too whimsical. I just don't like that type of humor. And every scene with Will Ferrell seemed like it was trying way too hard to be funny. So it wasn't really my thing, but it was fine. What is definitely not my thing is the strike situation in Hollywood. After this short break, we're going to take a look at generative AI and its role in the Hollywood writer's strike and any lessons that can be gleaned for other industries. So stay tuned. Hey, Rick and Rick Nation, don't forget to check out our website at rickandrick.com. It's double the Rick in just one click at rickandrick.com. And welcome back to Rick and Rick Rule the World, Rick Matheson and Rick Wooten. And we're talking about some of the lessons to be learned about generative AI from the Hollywood writer strike. All right. On Monday, October 9th, the Writers Guild of America West, the union representing film, television, radio, and new media writers, officially ratified its new contract with Hollywood Studios and finally closed the books on this strike that lasted for 148 freaking days. Well, this is the bummer part, Rick. The Writers Guild has reached an agreement, but the Actors Union remains on strike. And at the recording of this show, anyway, there is no end in sight. And from what I'm reading, even if the actors reached a deal today, we're looking at 2025 before we see the fifth and final season of Stranger Things or season two of The Last of Us or the outcome of that cliffhanger that capped season two of Star Trek Strange New World. Wow. That was going to be painful to wait for even when it was going to be in 2024. It's sounding like it will not return until 2025 at the earliest. You know, it's so interesting. It's been just under six months, right? It's like, yes. yeah. It's amazing that basically it, it ends up delaying things, you know, like a year or two. It's absolutely fascinating that happens. But I mean, I get it. It happens. The studios have lost billions out of this. I want to say that Warner Brothers Discovery had lost $500 just on its own. Yeah, it's been a painful strike for everybody. But from what I'm reading anyway, it seems like the writers got everything they were looking for. Among other things, the writers are getting higher pay for scripts. There are going to be more writers on shows. And importantly, residuals for shows run on streaming networks like Netflix, Disney Plus, and Max, which I don't believe they were getting before. Mm -hmm. And then, although I don't think it was really that much of the impetus for the strike, but one of the things that the writers were lobbying for was some guardrails set on the use of generative AI for developing content. And they pretty much got everything they wanted there as part of the agreement. Writers cannot be forced to use generative AI, though they can use it if the studio permits it. And they can do it without undermining their credit or compensation for shows. And although it is arguably already covered in existing copyright law, the Writers Guild also secured the right to bar the use of writer's material to train AI models. 
And I think this was in The Guardian. Simon Johnson, he's an economist at MIT, and he studies technological transformation. He told The Guardian that the new terms are, quote, a fantastic win for writers, and that he and others hope that this is going to become a model for the rest of the economy. As Johnson put it, AI is not to be used as an automation technology. It's complementary to humans. Yeah, you know, I, I get it. I mean, but at the same time, that's like saying they can't use computers, you know, or I don't know. It, it To me, this is one that I know you and I don't totally see eye to eye on, but I'm not a huge fan of saying what they can and can't do with the technology. I get it. I mean, at one time, there were illustrators that animated everything, and now there isn't. A lot of it's done through computers. It's no different with anything else, and we're not ready for it yet, I guess, but you know, eventually, we're going to get there, and you know, these things will be authored and, and generated by some sort of a, you know, a computer application, and it's going to be interesting. Well, it is also worth noting that a federal judge reaffirmed the ruling from the U.S. Copyright Office that content generated by artificial intelligence is not eligible for copyright protection, pretty much destroying its value for studios and other content creators or distributors. Copyright can only be assigned to a human who, if using generative AI as a tool or to generate content, only if that person has sufficiently transformed it enough so that it qualifies for copyright on its own. Now, it remains to be seen if this ultimately extends to copyright and trademark protection for things like logo designs or ad campaigns or sites or codes or algorithms or even product designs or any kind of corporate IP that's generated by artificial intelligence. So basically, it applies the rules applicable to human beings. Yeah, yeah, yeah fair enough. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see where this goes, right? Yeah, we've used ChatGPT a couple of times on the show, and, and we always make sure that listeners know when that's the case. In at least one instance where I used it, I couldn't really use much of the content generated by ChatGPT, but it was still really useful in that it like instantly made me realize where I wanted to take the content I was working on. So as a tool for writers, that by itself was like, yeah, awesome. I absolutely agree. I, I think I've told you this before, but I use it quite extensively. I mean, I wrote a job description recently for somebody I was going to hire. And even though it didn't write the final job description, it gave me an outline. And I can so much better do writing when I start with something than if I try to do something from scratch. And so over the course of basically an hour, I was able to ask ChatGPT to help me craft this job description. And like you, I didn't love everything that it said. In fact, I didn't love most of what it said, but it gave me a framework to work from. And then I was able to edit it. I'm a much better editor than a writer, I guess is really what I'm saying. And so for me, I think it's an indispensable tool. And I see people use this all the time right now. People have it frame out what a social media post will be, and then they'll go back in and edit it and change it and make it their own. And it's extremely effective and it's a powerful tool to get things moving quickly. You know, and this is one of the things that Matt and I talked about quite a bit. You know, one of the, the cool things about it is if you use it right, it can help you solve for issues like usability. Like some people are colorblind, some people have different reading challenges. And so you can actually use it to test for all those things and to generate something that's going to be a lot more beneficial to the human than you would otherwise. So I personally think that, you know, we need to, I was just talking about this at dinner tonight, we need to move past the stage where we're afraid of it. But that doesn't mean that we ignore the risks with it. I think it's really important that we continue to talk about the risks, that we continue to develop our point of view on how do we put frameworks around it. But when I hear what the writers union is doing, it's kind of like, ah, you guys, you're going too far. You're too afraid. You're pretending that this isn't going to be something in the future. You're trying to prevent it from happening. I mean, it is going to happen. It is going to become a thing and you need to adapt to it. And it's just not something that I see people fully comfortable with. And by the way, I've seen this in every single situation. Like, you know, you and I are old enough to remember when the VHS beta wars were happening. What you talking about? <laughs> and 
getting old enough for that. <laughs> so I remember. Actually, I don't know what that is. <laughs> that's right. And so, like, I remember when the broadcast companies were fighting against videotapes because it was going to ruin their businesses, and the internet was going to ruin this and ruin that. And you know, here we are, fast forward, and it hasn't ruined it, but we ha- did have to adapt to it. We did have to figure out how to take advantage of it and change it. Yes, and, and I think it's important that we don't mix up different issues here. They want for Hollywood writers to be able to use generative AI so long as the particular studio they're working with is okay with it. What they do care about is avoiding any reduction in their own credit or compensation if they're hired to work on an AI-generated script. In truth, the studios have as much or even more concern over the use of generative AI in script writing. Why would they want to avoid AI-written scripts? Because, as I mentioned a moment ago, copyright can only be assigned to a human being, not AI. In the eyes of the law, anyway, what we're talking about here is in no way, shape, or form like using a computer or any other tool to create or write content. The computer, it's a human mind driving the creative expression. That isn't the case with AI-written scripts, which are generated by a legally non-eligible mind through artificial intelligence. And no, just because you came up with the prompts and continued to refine those prompts in order to get to that final output that you were after, that is still not considered human creative. That's just like walking up to the AI burger joint and saying you'd like a burger with an extra large side of fries, and then trying to get a patent on that particular combo meal. And that means, as far as the studios are concerned, AI-generated content has little to no real monetary value. As Forbes reports, under the law anyway, an AI-created work is likely either a public domain work immediately upon creation and without a copyright owner capable of asserting rights, or a derivative work of the materials the AI tool was exposed to during training, which opens up a whole other mess that the studios don't want to be involved in. That begs the question of, eventually, will this be the case with other things created by generative AI? If generative AI created your corporate logo, your colors, your software code, your messaging, or your product design, or other IP, if a human didn't create it or didn't change it, make it sufficiently transformative from the final output provided by generative AI, it may be public domain, or it might have ownership protection belonging to somebody else. In order to copyright their work, writers have always needed to make sure that whatever they're seeking copyright protection for is different enough from anything anyone else has written. And now, if they use generative AI, they also have to demonstrate that they made enough changes to the AI-generated output that their script would never be confused with the AI-written version of that same script. Now, a couple of good examples. I don't know if you remember this, but a year or two ago, we did a segment about how this person had just gotten copyright approval for the first comic book ever to feature AI-generated artwork. Well, fast forward to last month, and the Copyright Office has informed the person that it is rescinding copyright for the artwork used in the comic book because that person could not demonstrate what, if any, changes they had made to the ultimate output. The person argued, hey, you know, but I oversaw the creative development here through the prompts. And the copyright office said that means the artwork was still developed by a non-human intelligence. So now the person's comic book script and the way that they laid out each panel on a page, that part is retaining its copyright because they are original to the copyright holder, but the artwork can in no way, shape, or form be protected. Now, today at least, most of what we've been talking about here in terms of copyright really matters for, you know, companies who are in the business of content creation and distribution like Hollywood Studios, but for other brands and other industries, they may ultimately not matter for things like social media posts or low-level communications. They really only matter when it comes to those things for which you want and need copyright protection for your brand. And let's face it, Rick, the most compelling use cases for generative AI are in other areas, especially as sort of a, a tool for determining 
understanding a course of action better, faster, and smarter. Yes. Let me give you an example. You know, Google came out with, I forget what it's called, like 360 Max or something like that. I forget what the name of it is. But it's basically an AI-driven SEM engine run by Google. So you put in some keywords, you put in some stuff, and then it takes it and runs a whole bunch of multivariate tests. It runs a whole bunch of other keywords that you didn't select. And then it comes up with everything for you. And one of the guys that works for me, he ran a test on this and it outperformed him and his team. You know, you want to talk about fast forwarding, you know, six months, a year from now, all this stuff, the magic that a lot of SEM people are doing, Google's going to try and replace. And Well, it is convenient that it's Google. (laughs) (laughs) Can kind of make sure that it performs better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's I've always had an issue with that because it's the fox guarding the hen house. Exactly. You've got, you know, Google deciding on which keywords to run and how much to bid and all that. Right. That's funny. You know, what a lot of folks don't realize is the technology has been around like forever. It's only that it's gone public through OpenAI releasing ChatGPT almost a year ago. Exactly. There was a um, AI-based therapist back in like 1966 and people freaked out because it was so good at, you know, helping people with their emotional issues. The model was based on, I guess it's Rogerian therapy where it's continuously asking you questions, essentially helping you get to the answers that you need. And people are shocked how good it was. And so this has been around forever. And now because it's public through tools like this, everyone is going to adapt. It's totally true. And to your point, I don't think people realize this because, God, what was it? 2017, I was working for an AI company who did chatbots. Now, the difference between what we have now and what they had then is that everything was custom to them. They didn't have an off-the-shelf tool like ChatGPT. But all this stuff existed. When you call into a call center and you say, hey, I would like support on my ticket or, hey, I need to pay, make a payment or whatever, that stuff you've been talking to for the last 10 years, that is AI. And it has been running for quite some time. And I don't think a lot of people quite grok that. Right. One of the best applications or use cases for generative AI is in coaching the real life call center person. So if you can't get the answer that you want through chatbot, you know, you say like to talk to a representative, these tools can coach that person through making faster decisions, let's say it's a loan, being able to collect the information and then scour the internets for more information to be able to correctly give you the right size loan for your income or you know whatever parameters are around it in a way that a human by themselves couldn't have done as quickly on their own or maybe as accurately or as fairly. And so some people are saying it's not AI for artificial intelligence. It's more like augmented intelligence for humans. You know, all these things, it's a tool. We have to figure out how to leverage them. They don't have to replace jobs, but they absolutely will change what we do for a living. You know, I mentioned Hidden Figures on the the interview with Matt. That movie was a really good example of this, where the digital computer came in to replace the human computer. The humans figured out that the best way to save their job is to go figure out how to program the the digital computer. And they did just that. And they did a great job at moving forward. This is the same thing. We need to figure out how to harness AI in everyday jobs. And you need to figure out how to use it. Thank you for tuning in to Rick and Rick Rule the World. Until next time, stay safe, keep each other safe, and keep on coming back to the one show where everybody's name is Rick. And everybody rules the world.